The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So in the last couple of weeks, I've been on Wade Avenue, and I passed a church on Wade Avenue and it had two large banners. And seeing two large banners in front of a church, I thought, I wonder what those banners say, because normally a banner in front of a church might have part of a scripture verse or part of God's character or an invitation to worship or to an upcoming event. But as I drove and got closer, I noticed both of those banners for this church on Wade Avenue say, Stop Climate Change Now. That is how they use both of their banners. And um, before you write me a nasty email, I do recycle for the sake of the record. (laughs) And I think the Bible tells us to care for creation. But didn't we just read from 2 Peter 3, verse 7, that the earth is prepared to be destroyed by fire? And didn't we just see from Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, when Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Here's why this is very important. Unless we have clarity about the future, we will never know how to have proper priority in the present. Unless we have clarity about the final future, we will never know how to have proper priority in the present. There are hundreds of thousands of somewhat good things you could spend your life on. But there are better things, and there are best things that are far more urgent when you know what the eternity is. So Matthew 24 and 25, it is so sad to me that these passages are normally skipped because here Jesus tells us the future. And with that clarity, we can have present priority. In fact, Jesus is really answering the question, how do I face the future? And he's picking up on that from verse 3. So Matthew 24, verse 3, the disciples have been asking Jesus all about the future. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What is the future? The key word there is coming. It's the Greek word parousia. It's repeated throughout the passage. When is the return of Jesus? How does the end come? Now, if you didn't hear the sermon I preached two Sundays ago called The Beginning of the End, I really have to encourage you to go back and listen to it because it gives you the foundation that we're going to build on today. But in short, it reminds us that the end has come when Jesus rose from the dead. That's the dawn of the end. The end is coming. The Bible calls the church age the end times. And the end will come, which is their particular question, when the Lord Jesus returns. And in chapter 24, Jesus said, don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Don't be surprised. Don't be afraid. Don't lose hope. Jesus Christ will return in victory. And in today's passage, Jesus reminds us that the uncertainty about the particulars should not cause us to be unprepared for the definitive return of Jesus. So please pick up in verse 36. Today's sermon is titled, Ready for the End. Ready for the End. That's the desire our Lord has for us to be ready for the end. So now verse 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That day is referring to that key word I showed you from verse 3. Coming in English, or parousia in Greek. That day, the day of the return of Jesus, no one knows but the Father only. 
There's a certain type of reader that gets very concerned here. Are they saying Jesus is not God because he doesn't know the future? No, of course not. But Jesus submits to the Father, and particularly so in his incarnation and earthly life. The point actually for us applicationally is we cannot and need not know all that the Father knows. As I said a couple Sundays ago, we can know all we need to know. We can never know all there is to know. (laughs) Only God the Father knows all there is to know. So there is an application for us already from just verse 36. We should not try to predict the exact timing of the return of Christ, but we should rejoice that the Father has it in control. Broadus, a long time ago, wrote this about this verse. How cheerfully should the followers of Jesus rest in our ignorance, not being removed. How cheerfully should we trust all things to our Heavenly Father's wisdom and goodness? How cheerfully should we strive to obey His revealed will and lean on His goodness for support? So we will not know exactly when Jesus will return, though the birth pains from last chapter give us a sense that it will indeed occur. Now verses 37 through 39 make clear that the return, though there are birth pains, will be sudden and interrupt ordinary life. Verse 37. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. All ordinary things that people do. Just ordinary life was happening. Until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. These verses are very striking to me because Second Peter 3 verse 4 says that just like people in the beginning said, Oh, the world will continue as it is. Nothing ever really drastic happens. The same cycles repeat themselves. Well, that's what they said before the flood came too. <laughs> there was a day when there had never been rain. And then the day came where the whole world was flooded with rain. Now, Jesus comparing his return to the flood is important on two levels. Just like how the flood was good news for some, but bad news for everybody else. So the return of Christ is good news for some, but really, really bad news for everybody else. If you think I'm making that up, please look in verse 30. Back in verse 30, Jesus is talking about his return. He says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. This is really bad news if you don't know Jesus. Look in verse 39. Just like the flood swept them away, so the return of Christ sweeps them away to eternal judgment. The flood was cataclysmically destructive, so the return of Christ will be cataclysmically bad news for those who've rejected Jesus. But for those who know the Lord, it's incredibly good news, as it was for Noah. Verse 39, everyone was unaware until the flood came. Life seemed ordinary until it was extraordinary. So it will be when the Lord returns. In fact, it'll be shockingly unexpected, which is the point of verses 40 through 42. Look in verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. How does Jesus want us to respond to that information? Look in verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. This is such a sudden and unexpected thing that it's shocking, so stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. 
There are many passages in the Bible that give us clarity about what's called the rapture, but I don't think this passage is about the rapture because remember verse 27 is talking about the visible, bodily, demonstrable return of the Son of Man to earth. So this is talking about it will come suddenly. Some will go to eternal judgment, others to eternal glory. But now we're going to focus our text this morning on the four parables Jesus tells. So if you have a bulletin, on the bulletin you'll see four parable headings. And these are the four parables that Jesus focuses on to help us be ready. Now let me kind of warn us up front. Here's the big danger whenever you're in a parable. The big danger whenever you're reading a parable is to try to imbue special insight or strange significance to the anecdotal details that are not meant to be twisted that way. Parables tend to tell a big point. You can't try to find some hidden meaning in every single detail. Otherwise, you'll end up like Dan Brown and you'll just be making up crazy stuff all over the place. But the Bible's actually very clear and the parables are very simple and they make rather obvious points. So let's look at them together. The first one is the homeowner and the thief. And that's verses 42 through 44. Lest you think it's confusing, look in verse 42. Here's the command, stay awake. Now look in verse 44. Here's the command, be ready. So therefore we know the story is going to teach that point. Stay awake and be ready. Now look at it again, verse 42. Therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's a very simple parable, isn't it? Just like you don't have a Google reminder notification to let you know someone's breaking in this evening, So there's an unexpectedness to the return of Christ. But here's the point of the parable. When a date is unspecified, it's easy to lose motivation to prepare. When a date is unspecified, it's easy to lose motivation to prepare. If you know when the thief is coming, you prepare. If you don't, you let your guard down. That's the entire thing Jesus wants us to be concerned about. Now, this image of a thief returning is the favorite of Jesus' apostles and followers. It's used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. It's used by Peter in 2 Peter 3, 10. It's used by John in Revelation 3, 3. This image of Jesus returning like a thief in the night is interwoven all through the New Testament. But the point is to be ready and don't give up vigilance just because you don't know exactly when. Now, the next parable. The master's servants. This is 45 through 51. Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. In in the Bible, picture almost like a, well, Downton Abbey's not too close, but there still is like a master-servant relationship that's common to the biblical era that's very uncommon for us. And so when we read these images, it's hard for us to relate. Maybe the closest modern equivalent I could give us, imagine you're on one of those apps where you house-sit for people. And they go to Europe, and you're in charge of their pets, and you're in charge of their plants, and you're in charge of their property. And then they return faster 
than you originally expected them to return. If they find their pets are dead and their plants are dead and their property is damaged, that's the image we have here. So now we continue in verse 48. If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. Notice the reason he thinks this is time to live however you want is because of the delay. Oh, nothing's going to happen. He's never going to return. Things are going to continue as they've always been. Now verse 49. And begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. Notice the master's absence gives him opportunity to carry out his already existing evil desires. So the desires are already evil. Now that the master is gone, I can act on them. But now verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. Not only is the Lord's return unexpected, but it may come sooner than some think. Verse 51, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. First, you might be thinking this punishment seems excessive, but carry out the metaphor. Imagine you've destroyed everything belonging to the creator. Furthermore, you might think hypocrisy. I don't see how it's hypocritical, but don't you remember the Definition of integrity. Integrity is who you are when someone isn't watching, right? So this is how someone behaves when they think the master will never call them into account. The other person behaves well because whether or not the master is present, their desire is to be dutiful in love to him. There's so many implications we could make. Let me make one to you. All right, the key theme of this parable is thinking that because the master is delayed, there's no need for integrity in the little things. But brothers and sisters, integrity in the little things shows your love for the master and integrity in his return. So whatever your stage of life is right now, if uh, you're a young mother at home doing all those daily routines that seem obnoxious, faithfulness in those is how you steward where God has put you in charge. In your career, having ethics, having excellence, having integrity. Faithfulness in that is your stewardship of what the master's put you in charge of. If you're loving an aging spouse whose health is fading away, faithfulness to them is faithfulness over what the master has put you in charge of, and so on and so on. This passage tells us to have faithfulness because the master will return. Now a third parable, and this one's the ten Bridesmaids. It's longer than the others, so we'll go a little more slowly. Now it's in Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. That word is a little bit similar to the way we would use bridesmaids in this context. Who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Something is happening here that's totally different from our culture, so I'll try to explain it a little bit. In, in America, we tend to do things very quickly. So we have a wedding, we have a ceremony, it's over. But previous cultures tend to lengthen things out. They last for a while. The closest experience I ever had was when my nephew turned 13. We had a party for him Friday. We took him to a splash pad Saturday. And then we had a family thing Sunday. And I said, is this a Jewish wedding? How many days are we going to honor this kid? In the first century, that was normal. Long celebrations. And here's one of the key celebrations. After the wedding festival... The bridesmaids 
would march everybody in the wedding party from the home of the bride to the home of the bridegroom. They would bring torches because it was a processional, almost like a parade through the city so that everybody could now know these two people are married and we're all excited about it. So they know it's a journey. They know what's coming. And so that you would bring lamps. But notice the clarity of verse 2. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. That's extremely clear. How were some foolish? How were some wise? Verse 3. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, which is necessary for them to keep burning. Verse 4. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. Verse 5. As the bridegroom was, notice our word again, delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. Their sleeping was not the problem. All of them slept. Even the wise ones slept. The delay means the return was longer than anyone thought it was going to be. Or are you getting the hint that our Lord's return might be longer than anyone thought it was going to be originally? Because it's longer than anyone thought, they didn't think they needed to prepare. But notice verse 6. But at midnight, there was a cry. And if you know the rest of the Bible, you might hear a shout or a trumpet blast. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Verse 7. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, which is a way of saying you cut the top so that it can be lit. Verse 8. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Verse 9, but the wise answered, saying, But since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's harsh, shouldn't they just give them some of their oil? Remember, it's a parable to make a point. And what would the point be of verse 9? You cannot transfer spiritual preparedness. You are responsible for yourself to be spiritually prepared for the return of the Lord. And when he comes, there are no transfers. In fact, foresight and preparedness is the demonstration of wisdom. So the verse continues now in verse 10. While they were going to buy the foolish ones, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Verse 11, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. If those words sound familiar, they also conclude Matthew 7. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Now the bridegroom in the Old Testament in Isaiah 54, 62, and Ezekiel and Hosea is referring to Yahweh. Here Jesus prescribes it to himself. Verse 12, when he answers, truly I say to you, I do not know you, reminds us of this very important point. Grace refused in life cannot be accepted afterwards. Grace refused in life cannot be accepted afterwards. Matthew Henry wrote it this way. Some will see their need of grace hereafter when it should save them who refuse to see their need of grace now. And so it will be. When our life ends or the Lord returns, 
The appointed day for mercy has closed. The day of salvation has passed, and the time of judgment has arrived. Thus the point would be, when the Son of Man returns, it's too late. So be prepared by acting wisely now. Now all of these parables make something clear. And that is that there is a day when Jesus returns, but not as a baby in a manger, but as a judge of all the earth. The fourth parable, the talents, is verses 14 through 30. This parable is lengthy, and I intend to save it for next Sunday. But in general, it tells us how the Christian lives diligently while waiting for the Lord's return. But now looking at your bulletin, I want to press out some implications of these parables for the way we live now. Number one, the first parable of the homeowner reminds us to be ready. A life that is ready welcomes the return of Jesus. Even though the time is unspecified, the motivation does not abate because you delight in seeing the Lord. When I was first married, the first year of our marriage, my wife and I lived in an apartment that was not too far away from my parents' house. And one Saturday morning, a friend of mine nearby, he, had a, he worked at a golf course, and so he had free golf for us. So I went over into my parents' garage, and I broke into their garage at about four in the morning. I broke in because I didn't live there anymore, but I knew my golf clubs were still there. <laughs> and I had the opportunity to golf, and though I don't normally love early mornings, I decided, well, this is a free, free round, so I'm going to take it. When I went into the garage, my hope was to slip in and slip out. But in my breaking and entering, <laughs> I accidentally woke my father. And I'll never forget, he opened the door with this face of fear and a blunt force weapon in his hand. <laughs> He's from Detroit, so it was either a hammer or a lead pipe, something you can use in Clue, I think. But he had it in his hand. And he had this look on his face of he was going to hurt whoever came into his garage. And I had a look of fear. <laughs> but thankfully, when he recognized me, his face completely changed and it turned to gladness and we embraced. Now, here's the thing about the thief metaphor. Normally, you don't want a thief to break in. But if the person breaking in is actually someone you love, you're delighted. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9 verse 28 that Christ has come once to offer himself for the sins of many, but he will appear a second time, not this time to deal with sin, but what for this time? To save those who, and this is very important, who eagerly wait for him. See how that changes the thief metaphor? See, the thief metaphor is bad news if he's your enemy. It's great news if he's your family. So be ready. And the way you're ready is by knowing your heavenly father only through having Jesus Christ as your Lord. So be ready. Number two, be faithful. This was the parable of the master who is away and the wicked servant and the righteous servant. This second parable tells us be faithful. And on your notes, you see a life that is faithful has not neglected, but faithfully stewarded what Jesus put him over. The second parable teaches integrity to do what's right, whether or not someone is looking over your shoulder. Have you noticed in life that some people, when authority figures are gone, it gives them the opportunity to reveal the sinful desires they always had. When the authority figures are gone, now they do what they always wanted to do anyway. Have you noticed sometimes during a riot, people break and steal from stores? They always wanted to, 
But now there's no police. This, this tells us the same principle. There's a person who's always wanted to disobey the Lord, and now they feel they have the opportunity because it doesn't seem like the Lord's actively working in earth. And so they think, we'll live without God, and we'll come up with our own system, thus forgetting that the Lord can return at any moment. Again, the Christian, though, even in the Lord's absence, wants to live in a way pleasing to him, just in the way a spouse would want to live in a way pleasing to his spouse, though their spouse is out of town. Titus 2.13 puts it this way, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the third parable, the parable of the bridesmaids, tells us number three, be prepared. A life that is prepared has anticipated the long haul and resourced adequately. Did you know you prepare differently for a 40-yard dash than for a 27-mile marathon? One group thought, we have the torches. The other group said, yeah, but we need the oil. (laughs) So to actually prepare for eternity means you can't live for just the present. If you're thinking only about today, then you've forgotten about that day. And if we don't have that day on our calendar, we won't know how to live in this day. In fact, there are some who in this day seem to have a temporary desire to meet the bridegroom. But actually, when the moment comes, they had never actually prepared to meet him. I like the way one author put it when he wrote this. The faith that falls away before the finish had a fatal flaw from the first. It's a good description of those who are not actually prepared to meet the bridegroom. First Peter tells us about this in chapter 1 and chapter 4. It says, because the Lord is returning... Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be controlled. Be level-headed. Await eagerly the return of the Lord. Now here's, I think, a concern some people have, especially those who are truly secular. They say, wait, I don't understand it. If you guys, as Christians, are confident in the future, then why would you live well in the present? If you have such security then why would that cause you to live diligently? And my argument biblically is actually that is the only reason that someone can live faithfully in the present. Those who are uncertain about the future uh, have risk. Those who are secured about it are willing to live with risk, to live selflessly. I was reminded of an example of that this week. I'll show this to you. This is Samantha. You can watch her story in full on the Baptist Children's Home website. But I want to show you how security actually leads to a life of faithful obedience and endeavors. Samantha has been in the custody of North Carolina's foster care system since she was five years old. At that time, she was able to enter into the Odom home in Pembroke, North Carolina, to the Baptist Children's Home there. When she first came, her life had been very difficult. She was kicked in and out of lots of difficult situations. But when she finally made it to the Baptist Children's Home there, she said she saw the Odom home as a beautiful place where she was safe. She felt safe there because her first night there, they had set out everything she would need to live with. She then said this, My first night I talked to my cottage parent and I told her everything I'd been through. She prayed with me. She hugged me. She told me that everything could be okay. Modeling Christ's love, this woman shared hope 
And through sharing hope, she changed Samantha's life. She brought Samantha with her to her church in Pembroke. Samantha there heard the gospel. Hearing the gospel, Samantha said this. She said, you know when the Holy Spirit comes on you and your heart starts beating fast? She said, that's what happened to me. And so I came to the altar. I kneeled on the front and I said, I need to be saved. And that's when I started living for God. But the part of the story that I found most amazing was this past year, Samantha graduated from high school. And graduating from high school, she applied and was accepted at UNC Pembroke, where she was enrolled with a scholarship. At first I thought, why would she choose to live, and why would she choose to attend UNC Pembroke? Why not another school? The answer, as I read later in the article, was because it's one block away from the Odom home where she was brought in to be fostered by the Baptist Children's Home. What she said later that struck me was this. I knew I could continue in school because I felt safe being one block away from home. See, actually the reason Christians can live faithfully and sacrificially is because our Lord said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And because he said, I've prepared a place for you and I will come and get you again so that where I am, you may be also. The motivation to live with faith without fear comes from the confidence that our Lord has already risen victoriously. But wait, this morning, you might be thinking, Josh, that sounds like a great pie-in-the-sky kind of promise, but you don't know how hard my life is now. That, that sounds wonderful that someday the Lord is going to make all things new, but you don't know how bad my life is today. There's a great section in The Lord of the Rings where Frodo and Sam are talking to one another. Frodo starts to fear that life is irrevocably difficult, and he starts to talk about all the stories he read of adventure. And he thought, I, only, I thought people went into adventure because their lives were dull. <laughs> but now that I realize how hard these stories can be, I realize that the tales that really matter are always the hard ones. At this moment, Sam tries to encourage Frodo by telling him about their story and all the things that they've endured. But as Sam starts to recount what they've endured, all the things they've been enduring recently are bad. At which point Frodo tells him, I think at this point someone will say, shut the book now, Dad. We don't want to read anymore. But if you know the rest of the story of the Lord of the Rings, it doesn't end there. And Christian, it's important for you to know the rest of the story too. Jesus Christ returns victoriously. Everything you've suffered in this life matters. Everything you do counts. Living well has significance. And he will return at a day and time when no one knows. So let me remind you of some big principles. Christian, you will be glorified and your body will be resurrected. Christian, purify yourself now in the confidence that when you see him, you will be like him, for you will see him as he is. So purify yourself in the pursuit of holiness. Third, Christian, live faithful, not ashamed for his unexpected return. Fourth, Christian, rejoice. He will wipe every tear from our eyes, and he will make all things new. But this morning, if you're hearing this text, about the Lord returning at an unexpected time, and it's frightening to you. Know this, that you can be ready today. 
You can be as ready as any believer if you will call upon the name of the Lord. But let me encourage you with why I would appeal to you to call on the name of the Lord today. Here's what was perhaps the most striking thing for me this week as I was working through this passage. This passage is about the cosmic power of Jesus when he comes back. How he will control the whole world and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But the reason you should believe in him is because he chose not to come that way the first time. You see, the shepherd chose to give his life for the sheep. Not because someone took it from him, because he willingly offered it. And because he did that and raised his life up again, why would you fear him who demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? So come to the shepherd now. The shepherd who had all power and set all of it aside so he could bear all our sin so that we could share in his victory. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that Jesus is coming again. Thank you that he will make every wrong right. And thank you that because we know he will return, we can know how we ought to live in the present. Help us to prioritize properly based on what is actually most important. Help us to be faithful in the ordinary things. Help us to have integrity, knowing that he will return. Help us, Lord, to be ready with eager expectation, delighting to see someone who we long to meet with face to face. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who maybe thinks, well, I'm not ready. I I haven't put my trust in Christ. Today can be the day of salvation for them. And help them to realize that the Lord who has all power has borne all their sin and has died in apparent weakness so that they can rise in true strength. Lord, I pray also, Lord, that this passage would be one that actually comforts us. Remind us that suffering is the path between Eden and the new earth. And that that path of suffering has eternal blessings and that it works towards the greater glory that you're preparing for us. So remind us, like Frodo and Sam, that this is not the end of the story. But the end of the story has been written, and Christ returns victoriously. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.